Have you been vaccinated yet? Flu, H1N1? I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> Vaccinations have been around for a long time. We've grown up with vaccinations, actually, in this country. Vaccines have largely eradicated once widespread diseases, like polio, for example, and others. Vaccines contain, you understand how they work, they contain weakened or dead germs of a disease, such as measles or mumps or polio, and those weakened or dead germs trigger the immune system to respond and the body builds up an immunity to the actual disease. All right, think this morning of Christianity like a spiritual infection. In this case, a good one, but still like a spiritual infection. There are those who catch, if you will, a weak or dead version of Christianity and so become immunized to the real thing. And I think that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to talk about in Hebrews chapter 6, where we pick up this morning. Hebrews 6 is the third warning passage in the book of Hebrews. And quite frankly, is one of the more difficult passages in all of the New Testament to interpret. I think the author, in summary, is warning people not to become immunized vaccinated against real Christianity. A former professor of mine by the name of Dan Wallace and his co-author Daryl Bach uh, write these wor words in their book, Dethroning Jesus, Exposing Popular Culture's Quest to Unseat the Biblical Christ. They say in their, their opening chapter, I think it is, a brittle fundamentalism has caused many who came from such a background to eventually grow out of and renounce it. The interesting thing is that many who write most skeptically about Christianity today started out in a conservative, Bible-believing environment. And that's a true statement, sadly. Unfortunately, we have seen the, the truth of that statement down through modern church history. And certainly we see it in, in many situations today. Some of the most vocal critics of Christianity today grew up in fundamental Christian churches or were exposed to Christianity in their youth, many times professed faith in Christ, only to eventually turn away from Christ and end up attacking Christianity. The author of Hebrews was dealing with people in the first century who had professed faith in Christ, started out well in the church, only to end up turning away from Christ. So uh, let's follow his argument in this warning here in Hebrews chapter 6. And the first principle is this. How we progress proves what we believe. How we progress actually proves what we believe. Hebrews 6, let's pick up with verse 1. Therefore, now, he's actually started the warning, and we looked at verses 11 through 14 in chapter 5 last Sunday as he set up for this, this warning. So therefore, based upon what he has said in chapter 5, where he has talked about the, the fact that they have gone back to the elementary principles of the words of God, 
He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings, the words literally, about Christ, let us press on to maturity, to completeness, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. Now, in order to understand these verses, we, we have to understand the context of Hebrews. The author is writing to Jewish Christians. That's why it's called the letter to the Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish Christians in the first century. These were Hebrews who had professed faith in Christ, started out in the church, but now they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And so his theme in the book of Hebrews has to do with this issue of Hebrews, Jewish Christians, who were tempted to fall back into Judaism. There were those in the church who were thinking about renouncing their faith in Christ and returning to the law of Moses. And the author then is warning them not to turn away from Christ, and he is encouraging them to continue on to make progress in the faith. So he encourages these Jewish Christians to press on to maturity, leaving the elementary principles about Christ behind. Now, the Greek word for leave that is used in this passage is a very strong word. It meant to send away, and in fact in the New Testament is actually used for divorce, marital divorce. So he is saying he wants them to divorce themselves from the elementary principles about Christ. They are to divorce themselves from those teachings and press on. That tells us that the elementary words or teachings about Christ that are being referred to here, they cannot be the gospel. For the Bible never teaches us to divorce ourselves from the gospel. We are never to send away the gospel as Christians. That's the true foundation for our faith. So these elementary teachings cannot mean the gospel because Christians are not to divorce themselves from the gospel. It must be something different. What then are the elementary teachings about Christ? And he lists them. He describes these teachings in the next two verses as the foundation. He calls it for our faith, and we're not to lay again this foundation. There are six elements of this foundation which are grammatically combined into three couplets. So there is repentance from dead works and faith in God. There is teachings of washings. By the way, I think one of the translations says baptism, but really it's plural and it refers to the washings, the the ceremonial washings, teachings of washings and laying on of hands, the resurrections of the dead and eternal judgment. So six elements combined in in, uh, couplets here. Every one of these six elements could describe an Old Testament Israelite and his faith. In every Jewish home, for example, teachings of washings, going back to that one, in every Jewish home, there was a basin of water by the doorway where they would wash. And there were many rules about the washings that they were supposed to go through. Laying on of hands. In the Old Testament system, when you performed a sacrifice, what did you do? 
You laid your hands on the sacrifice, which became your substitute for sin. Faith in God, repentance from all the dead works, the resurrections of the dead, eternal judgment. These are all consistent with an Old Testament Israelite faith. There is nothing distinctively New Testament or Christian about any of these six elements. That doesn't mean we don't repent. It doesn't mean... But we build on that in the New Testament. But these all were part of the Old Testament faith system. So a good Old Testament Israelite would believe all six elements. Now, that fits the argument of the book of Hebrews. Because the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is don't go back. Don't go back to that. Progress on to Christ. He is the culmination. So the letter is written to Jewish Christians who are in danger of returning to their Jewish faith instead of progressing on in Christ. The historical foundation for Christianity is certainly the Old Testament law and certainly the Old Testament as a whole. It was designed to prepare the way for the New Testament. The Old Testament, if you will, is the New Testament in picture language. Like like a children's book prepares a child to read as an adult. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. It's the primer for Christianity. The author of Hebrews will argue that the Old Testament law, he will use the words a shadow or a copy of the New Testament truth in Christ. Everything in the Old Testament then prepared the way for Christ. But once Christ came, it made the Old Testament system obsolete. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. We'll see later he comes, it, it becomes very clear. He calls the Old Testament law a shadow or a copy, a picture book for the New Testament. And the argument comes to a head in chapter 10 and verse 1 where he says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, he says, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect or complete those who draw near. You can't do that. It's impossible. So the law is picture language, the truth is Christ, leaving behind the beginning words or picture language, we are to press on to completeness or perfection or maturity, depending upon your translation, in Christ. We are not to go back and lay again the foundation which was laid in the Old Testament law. The author says, let us then press on to maturity or completeness, here in Hebrews 6. Literally, in the Greek, it is, let us be driven on to completeness. It is a passive verb. It's not active. We are to be driven on by another force, and that would be God. Our pressing on is not really what matters as much as God driving us on. See, that's the force of the passage. And that's why he closes in verse 3 these opening words with, And we will do this, what? If God permits. Because if God isn't in it, it's not going to happen. God is the one. He is the author of salvation. Salvation is God's work. And we must be driven on to completeness in Christ by God who is at work in our hearts. So, the first principle that he begins as he sets the stage for the warning is how we progress proves what we believe. 
not some profession of faith, not walking an aisle, not saying certain words or praying a certain prayer, but progression. How we progress eventually proves what we really believe. And if we don't progress, as he will say, if we regress, then we don't really believe. That's the warning. Second principle, then. Whether we persevere proves who we follow. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. All right, here's the crux of the the whole argument. And quite frankly, a very tough passage to understand. Theologians over the years have struggled with this passage. And I, I think Homer Kent summarizes the views quite well in terms of four categories. People express themselves differently as they deal with this passage. But basically, all of the interpretations fall into one of these four categories. All right? The first view is that this passage is talking about saved people who lose their salvation. Bear with me a minute, because I want you to at least understand, before I tell you what's really right, you know, (laughs) before I tell you what I think the passage is saying, I want you to understand how people have disagreed over this, all right? So the first view is that this passage is talking about saved people who lose their salvation. Now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that a person who is truly saved will ever lose their salvation. There are too many other passages of Scripture that teach us that we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand, as we we deal with this warning passage, I don't believe that true believers can ever lose their salvation. I believe that we are eternally secure in Christ, for the salvation we have is His, right? But if you adopt this view, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, then understand what this passage is teaching, because if you think this passage is teaching that you can lose your salvation, what is it also teaching? You can never get it back. It is impossible to renew you again to repentance. So getting saved over and over and over again doesn't fit this passage at all, right? Because it says it's impossible to renew that person again to repentance. Second view. The second view is that this passage refers to believers who backslide. The falling away is understood to mean falling into sin to the extent that you are in danger of God's discipline. And the problem, of course, with this view is is the impossibility statement that follows at the end. And that's why in this view, generally, people suggest that impossible doesn't really mean impossible, all right? It, It means something less. It means humanly impossible, all right, but with God, all things are possible, so it's not really impossible with God. Or another way that it sometimes is handled is that it means it is impossible to start over as a new Christian, 
You can't go back and begin your Christian life again if you backslide. You have to start from where you are and move onward. All right? You can't go back to your starting point as a Christian. Of course, the text says, and this is my problem with this view, that it is impossible to renew again to repentance someone who's, who's done this. So, someone who had fallen into sin seems from the rest of Scripture would certainly need to repent of that sin, and yet it says it's impossible to renew that person to repentance, taking it at face value. The third view is that this is just a hypothetical case for purposes of illustration, to make a point. To those who think that if they are truly Christian, they could go back to Judaism, then they should realize how frighteningly impossible this is for a Christian. True believers would be warned then to remain firm in Christ by this hypothetical case of what you are doing if you were to turn away from Christ, which you're not really doing. All right? It's hard for me to see this as much of a warning if it's just a hypothetical, if it's just a theory. So, number four, it's got to be the right one, right? I think, my understanding of this passage and where we'll go from here, is that I think it's talking about professed believers who never were really saved in the first place. They proved that they were not truly believers by falling away from Christianity. Because they fell away, they showed they were never really saved. They claimed to be Christians. They went to church for years, perhaps. But eventually they turned away and attacked Christianity, and that proves that they were never really saved in the first place. I think that's the only view that makes good sense theologically from what I understand of all of the scriptures and fits the theme or the argument of the book of Hebrews. Many people claim to be Christians. I've met people over the years who said, you know, I went forward 40 years earlier at some meeting. I I prayed a certain prayer, right? But you'd never know it from looking at them and what they did. Or many people go to church for years and years and years, but it never changes anything inside of them. Eventually, people reject Christ, and that's this case here. That's the warning. Don't go back. But this kind of rejection, let me say, is a temporary re- is more than a case of just a temporary rejection, if you will. This rejection is a hardened rejection. It is a choosing to harden the heart against God's truth in Christ to the point where the author says it becomes impossible to renew that person again to repentance. This is hardened unbelief, not simply ignorant unbelief. The person knows the truth, refuses to believe the truth, and that kind of heart that refuses to believe in Christ, that kind of heart can never be saved. Let's unpack the verses a little bit more. The structure of the passage is, is important because you can't see it actually in the English translations. The word impossible in the Greek text is the very first word of verse 4, not verse 6, where it's usually placed. It's the very first word of verse 4. 
What does that tell us? It tells us that the whole emphasis of the author is on impossible. It's right up front, like putting it in big, bold caps, way up at the front of verse 4, right? Then what follows is a lengthy parenthesis, which is a description of who he is talking about in verses 4 through 6. And then you come to the rest of the sentence. For it is impossible, who, description, to again renew unto repentance. And then you come to why it is impossible to renew that person again to repentance. If you understand that structure, it will help us. So verses 4 through 6 are the description of who he is talking about when he says it's impossible to again renew unto repentance. Verse 6 The end of verse 6 is the why it is impossible. All right, let's look at the who. There are six parts to this description. In other words, this person is described with six characteristics to fit this. The final one is the phrase, have fallen away. So let's take that one first, because it sort of explains to some extent the others. The verb have fallen away means literally... To, have, to fail to follow through on a commitment. To fail to follow through on a commitment. It was used of someone in church history, of someone who denied the faith, committed apostasy. That's the theological term. But in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, this verb was actually used of someone who had signed a contract but failed to fulfill the contract. It's a business term. So this is a person who signs a contract but fails to follow through on that contractual commitment and denies it, breaks the contract. So it refers to someone who makes a profession, a commitment to Christ, and then fails to follow through on that commitment and ends up denying the commitment that was made to Christ. Theologically, we call that apostasy. It's not just simple, you know, ignorant unbelief. It's a denial of a commitment once made. Now, the first thing to notice about the other five parts of this description is the lack of any terms we see for genuine Christianity in these terms, all right? For what it means to become a true Christian. What's missing? Normally in the New Testament, we see terms like justification by faith. We see terms like regeneration, being born again, becoming new creatures in Christ, forgiven for your sins. All of these are normal terms for describing someone who becomes a Christian in the New Testament. We see none of those terms in this passage. Instead, we have terms that are not necessarily terms of salvation elsewhere, of conversion elsewhere. In fact, nowhere else in the New Testament. These are terms that can very easily describe someone who is almost. See, enlightened, tasted, shared. Those are the kinds of terms that we see in this passage. Someone who is almost there, I think, but not quite. To be enlightened is not necessarily to be saved. Many people are enlightened without accepting Christ. They're enlightened by Christ, but they're not, they don't accept Christ. 
To taste of the heavenly gift is not to eat or digest that gift. A person can taste Christ and not take Christ. You could still spit him out, so to speak. The one expression that is more of a problem in my understanding of this passage has to do with partakers of the Holy Spirit, right? As the translation says it here. How can you be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and not be genuinely regenerated? That is, have the Holy Spirit and you're a new person. Well, partakers of the Holy Spirit is a legitimate translation, but that's not the only way to translate the word. It is commonly used for an associate or a companion or a sharer. And you certainly can be an associate or a companion or a sharer of the Holy Spirit without the Holy Spirit living inside of you, taking up residences, which is the way the New Testament generally describes a genuine believer. So, I think it means someone, not necessarily mean to partake in the sense of to possess, it means to share or associate with the Holy Spirit. So a person could associate with the Holy Spirit without possessing the Holy Spirit. The person tastes the good word of God. The person tastes the powers of the age to come without surrendering to those powers. These are people who come close and even profess faith in Christ, but they never fully accept Christ. I think of Judas Iscariot. Three years he traveled with Christ, didn't he? For everything that you can see, he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ during those three years. He certainly participated in the powerful works of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God through Christ and through the disciples, by the way. We have no reason to believe he didn't do some of these works as well. Healed people. The disciples were sent out. They cast out demons in the power of the Spirit of God. No reason to think that Judas didn't do many of those things. And yet, in the end, what happened? Judas turned against Christ and participated and supported in the crucifixion of Christ by betraying him. I think of Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus responds to the message of Christianity. He's excited by it all. And depending upon how the translations go, and you can read it later, he, he may well have been baptized. He may well have even experienced the laying on of hands in Acts chapter 8, where the Spirit of God empowers people. And yet, when you come to the end of Acts chapter 8, you find Simon saying to Peter, Hey, I'll pay you some money for the ability to give out this powerful gift to other people. You give me the gift, and I'll be glad to pay you some money so I can do these things. And what does Peter say in Acts chapter 8? Peter says, You got no part of this. You don't even understand what we're talking about. You are not right with God. You you have no part with God. Get out of here. Here was a man who certainly shared in powerful events of Christianity and yet had no part in God. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right 
unto God, Peter said. See, what I'm trying to say is you can be so close to God and never know God. You can be so outwardly religious and never have Christ in your heart. You can profess faith in Christ and do great things even in the name of Christ, but not possess Christ. A person who has all of these wonderful benefits, but who then hardens his heart against Christ, reaches a level of unbelief that cannot be renewed again to repentance. Hard hearts can't be saved. A person hardened in unbelief has no hope of eternal life. Martin Luther observed, God is not hostile to sinners, but only to unbelievers. I like that line. Think about that for a minute. God's not hostile to sinners. We've sung about it today. His mercy there was great and grace was free. God's not hostile to sinners. He came, he sent his son to die for sinners. What's the problem? It's unbelief that's the problem, not sin. A person who chooses not to believe is not going to be saved. He's not going to go to heaven. God's not hostile to sinners. His arms are open wide to sinners, but to unbelief. Now there's the problem. God does not save those who refuse to believe. So that means every person is responsible to make that choice to believe in Christ. That's the human responsibility. If a person never believes, he'll never be saved. Ultimately, that's the end result of unbelief. Now, you know, passages like this, we have to be careful. None of us know the heart of another person. God does. I don't know the heart of another person. It's not my responsibility to judge that person. But the heart that rejects Christ cannot be saved. And God knows that heart. And when a person reaches that point of willful rejection, the heart is hardened against God, and it is impossible to renew this person to repentance because the heart is too hard. Why is it so impossible? The end of verse 6 tells us, and it tells us in very graphic language. What does it say in the end of verse 6? It says, because... Here's the reason why it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Because since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. The kind of person that hardens his heart against Christ is actually doing what? Crucifying for himself the Son of God all over again. And humiliating the Son of God by his actions treating him with contempt here's what God did for you here's what Jesus did for you on the cross and when you harden your heart or anyone hardens their heart against him then it's as if you nailed those nails right through his hands you did it that's what he's saying that's why it's so impossible to renew that person again because when you reach that point you have essentially nailed the hands of Christ to the cross. You've treated him with contempt. 
Isn't that what Judas did? Took the money, yes, but in essence, he was choosing to join the Pharisees in nailing Christ to the cross, in crucifying Christ. To be exposed to all that one can know about Christ, to taste it, to feel it, and still choose to reject him is to choose to follow those who nailed him to the cross 2,000 years ago. And there's no hope for a person if he's nailing Christ to the cross in his heart. If he's saying, yes, he deserved to die, he's nothing. So whether we persevere proves who we really follow. Those who nailed Christ to the cross or those who trust him as Savior. Elaine Pagels is a modern author who has attacked Christianity repeatedly in her books. She wrote the book, The Gnostic Gospels, in which, of course, she sides with those against Christ, argued that Christianity is totally false, Christ, all the claims about Christ are wrong. Judas was right, according to Gnosticism, you understand. Gnosticism argues that Judas was correct and that Christ was wrong. If that isn't nailing Christ to the cross, I don't know what is. With words, certainly. From all I've read, Elaine Pagel's a very nice person, but she rejects Christianity. In her book, Beyond Belief, she tells her own testimony of how she came to that point, if you will. It's her testimony, if you will. She went to a good evangelical church when she was in high school. She heard the message. She was a part of that church. But she says she was burned by the church and turned away from Christianity by an experience she had as a teenager when a Jewish friend died and Christians told her that her friend was going to hell. She became very angry. She eventually turned to Gnosticism in college and graduate school and the vision of spiritual self-enlightenment, and she rejected Christ. Now, I don't know her heart, but she certainly has sided with Judas in her writings. And this warning would be for her and all others who tasted but don't take Christ. It's a very serious warning. If a person today sides with Judas, then it is as if they are nailing Christ to the cross for themselves. So we can start well and turn away from the faith. We, when that happens, we are showing who we really choose to follow spiritually. Third principle. What we produce proves what we actually are. Verses 7 and 8. We come to an illustration then for this whole principle. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So here's an illustration to make the point. It's an illustration, of course, Jesus used similar kinds of illustration in his teaching in several ways. The same rain falls on two different soils. Same rain, but it falls on two different soils. One soil produces a good crop, 
and is blessed by God. One soil produces thistles and weeds and is cursed by God. Same rain, two different hearts, two different soils. What we produce then actually is what proves what we are. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 7. He said that you will know people by their fruits, by what is produced. He was talking about false teachers. He said you'll know people by what is produced, by their fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And a good tree cannot in the end, produce bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And he said, false teachers may look very good, but in the end, you will know them by what they produce. When a person writes against Christ and speaks against Christ and lives in opposition to what Christ tells us, the person is not a follower of Christ no matter what they profess. That person is on the same side of this matter as those who crucified Christ on the cross. And it is impossible for such a person to be saved when they have hardened themselves to the point of crucifying Christ for themselves. What is inside will eventually come out. What we produce proves what we are. In his book, Please Don't Squeeze the Christian... (laughs) Scott Cernow reflects on the danger of cynicism. He says cynicism kills in the manner of frostbite. The only symptom is a deadening numbness. Callousness and doubt numb us to life and joy. We find ourselves leaving the triumphant lyrics of the old hymns on the church doorstep because they appear hopelessly out of step with the world that is waiting outside. Our problem is not that we've been taught to question our faith, but rather that we've been taught to reject any answers. Doubt can be a state of mind, or it can be a way of life. Think about that. Cynicism. It kills like frostbite. And we are in a cynical world, are we not? See, grow up in the church. You sing the hymns and the choruses like we sang the hymns this morning. Then you get out there and you become, begin to become cynical about it all. And slowly, slowly it kills, it destroys the soul. And doubt becomes not just a state of mind, but a way of life. Hebrews 6 teaches us that continuance is the test of reality. Do you continue in the faith? There's the test. Now again, I don't, as I said last Sunday, I'm not talking about whether you sin. (laughs) Christians sin. It's not a a, a nice, neat line right up to God, is it? We're more like a roller coaster. But we continue. True Christians continue in the end. That's the test of reality. So the author of Hebrews is warning us that there's a bit of Christianity that can vaccinate us against the fullness of Christianity. We can taste but not take. And a person can become immunized against real Christianity and harden his heart against Christ. The result is that that person joins those who crucified Christ. So we can't tell, really, if a a person is a Christian, if a faith is real just by a profession, just by praying words 
or saying words at some point in their lives. We can only tell if a faith is real if there is continuance. And a person who hardened his heart against Christ may someday find that the heart can no longer respond to Christ because cynicism has killed it and doubt has killed it. There's a classic illustration of this in C.S. Lewis' book, The Magician's Nephew. He writes about uh, the creation of fictitious Narnia through the song of Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in the book of of, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And he would sing this song, the lion would sing this beautiful song to reveal the majesty and glory of, of God. And it was a grand call to worship, like Genesis 1 and the creation of this world. But there was one person, Uncle Andrew, who would not hear it. And I say would not hear it. He heard it. He heard the song. He could hear the lion singing. But he chose to say the lion cannot sing. It cannot be a song because lions cannot sing. And the consequences were staggering. When the lion had first begun singing, Uncle Andrew listened. He heard the song, but he said, No, he can't be singing, for lions only roar. And every time the lion sang, he would hear the singing and he would stop himself. No, this cannot be. I will not believe that the lion can sing. And the longer, as C.S. Lewis writes it, the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. (laughs) Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake! He didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. Father, protect us from the cynicism that freezes our souls against you. pray that your life would fill each one in this room, that we would genuinely follow you through the challenges ahead and not fall away or turn back from you. For the faith that you impart lasts forever. Teach us to be tender toward you and not to develop hard hearts against you. In Jesus' name, amen.